Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York's Adult Survivors Act has taken effect. Under the measure, victims of alleged sexual abuse have a year to file a claim in court against their alleged abusers. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more. The Adult Survivors Act is modeled on the Child Victims Act, which was approved in 2019. It allows people who are over 18 years of age when they experience sexual abuse to have a one-year window of opportunity to file a claim against their alleged abuser in civil court. They can bring legal action even if the statute of limitations for the crime has expired. On May 24th, Governor Kathy Hochul, who replaced former Governor Andrew Cuomo after he resigned in a sexual harassment scandal, signed the measure into law. Finally, we are starting to right a wrong that has existed for far too long. Because when it came to sexual assault, our laws were protecting the abusers more than not. Now, six months later, the lawsuits can begin. Since the first date to file falls on Thanksgiving, survivors will have to wait until Monday to actually initiate court action. Supporters are raising public awareness about the law, including an ad running in New York City's Times Square, where they held a news conference. Look up there. Look at the faces up there. Evelyn Yang, wife of former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, is among over 200 women who say they were abused by former Columbia University OBGYN Robert Haddon. Haddon, in 2016, pleaded guilty to abusing 19 women. Yang is one of 147 former patients who reached a $165 million settlement with the hospitals that employed Haddon, Columbia Medical Center, and New York Presbyterian. Yang says going to court and being heard can be empowering, and she says survivors now have that option. Civil suits are a means of protest. It is one of the few ways that we have as survivors to demand accountability. Over 750 former female inmates at state prisons are set to bring suit against the State Department of Corrections for abuses they say they suffered while they were incarcerated. But Michael Pollenberg with Safe Horizons, a survivor's rights group, says there's no way of knowing how many will file a claim. He says the number of lawsuits filed under the window of opportunity provided by the Child Victims Act was significant. That window was extended for an additional year because of the pandemic. In the two years that the look-back window is open in New York State, um, about 10,000 cases were filed. Unlike the instances of childhood sexual abuse, though, many of the incidents did not occur with a member of a large organization like the Catholic Church or the Boy Scouts. Pollenberg says it is more difficult to bring cases when it does not involve an entity with significant assets. There will be people who may struggle to find an attorney to be able to bring a case forward, Um, But we think it's really important, uh, nonetheless, to get this law passed to allow people every opportunity to try to find an attorney and to try to file a lawsuit. The law does not guarantee that anyone filing a civil case against an alleged abuser will win their lawsuit. They still need to provide evidence and convince a judge, but supporters say it can be powerful just to be heard. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok sat down with newly re-elected leader of the state assembly, Republican Will Barclay. They spoke about Republicans faring well in the recent midterm elections in New York and a host of other topics. I was pleased. I was pleased with our conference. We won at least five seats. We may have won up to seven. We'll see. There's unfortunately still court cases and recounts uh, going on. Uh, but I think ultimately it, uh, it illustrated, particularly in the city where we picked up, we have our largest delegation in the city, we picked up four or five seats uh, there. Um, so that that's really uh, very special. And uh, I think it's crime. You know, I think the ultimately people, one of the number one things that you can do as an elected official is make sure your communities are safe. And unfortunately, because of some democratic policies like raise the age, bail reform, the anti-police narrative, et cetera, uh, people are no longer feeling safe on their streets, and they've, they've made the Democrats pay uh, in the voting booth. What's made you enthusiastic about your chances? Do you really think that Republicans in blue state New York can make this work? I do. Again, you know, for us to be in the majority, that might be a bit of a stretch, but we've always said we don't need to be in the majority. All we need to do is add to our numbers. It makes governing more difficult particularly to push progressive policies and that's really what we want to do is try to put a stop to some of these ill-informed uh, socialist type policies that the democrats unfortunately over the last few years have been implementing so i am optimistic i continue to be optimistic i think particularly in new york city some of the uh, communities can be very difficult uh, to break into and i think we were able to do that successfully uh, we have an asian american uh, we have a, a number of Russians in those communities. Once you get in there, they can see, wow, this Democratic Party isn't the only option out there. There are Republicans. They can be effective, and actually they hold the viewpoints that I hold, and uh, maybe we can expand on those numbers in coming elections. So what is it, Will Barclay, that makes New York Cityers so Democratic in their orientation? Does that bother you? Sure. I mean, I think it's traditional. It goes back, you know, several generations probably, uh, but that doesn't mean it has to be like that forever. And again, if they continue to pass these policies, particularly when it comes crime, I think it's probably the one that comes to mind the most, but even economic policies and the dealing with inflation, uh, downstaters aren't uh, immune to that. And we certainly feel it here upstate. Uh, so, I, I, again, I'm optimistic that uh, things can change. So now that, you know, you've gone through an election successfully, I think, winning five seats and helping put Republicans in the majority in the House, what's your take on the recent elections? Do you think Republican ascendancy is happening? Well, <laughs> I guess it's how you define the term ascendancy. But, yes, we are certainly on the move up. And I think, again, we'll have a stronger voice in Albany, certainly we'll have a stronger voice in Washington, and I think that will ultimately help the party and help the direction that the state and the nation is on. I think the more interesting part of the equation is what the Democrats will learn from this election. Will they continue to pass far-left policies, or will they understand that that's not popular with the voters and maybe they ought to start moderating those policies. The other interesting thing, I think, straight up is what the governor does. And, uh, you know, she's got a court of appeals appointee she's got to make. There's progressives are arguing that she needs to follow a number of political litmus tests and uh, uh, ethnic litmus tests, et cetera. And it'll be interesting to see if she caves to the progressives like she has been doing or whether after this election she realizes that 
going far left isn't a popular political move, and maybe she'll move more to the middle. Can you give me an example, Will Buckley, of the tendency to move far left? You keep saying far left. What has she done that is she, Yeah. Well, let's take crime, for instance. There's some very, what I think I would categorize as common sense changes that could be made, particularly bail reform and to raise the age where you're not throwing out the policy wholesale, but you're just changing to make it better. And an easy one's judge's discretion with bail reform. She has refused to do that. She could have used her political capital any time last year and probably could have gotten it done. But she doesn't want to do it because she didn't want to offend uh, the hard left of her party. So the same with economic. Look at the economic issues. I mean, we spent last year like drunken sailors, $220 billion budget. That's not sustainable. You would hope a governor who has to represent this whole state had to get reelected would bring some sanity probably into our spending, but instead she again caved and went crazy uh, on spending. We're going to be paying for that, I think, in these, in these this year, but definitely the out years. What do you make of New York City Mayor Eric Adams' plan to remove people with severe, untreated mental illness from the streets? That will mean, of course, involuntary hospitalization of people deemed unable to care for themselves. Is this a good idea? Should we be removing? Well, yeah, yeah. I think I don't know the specifics of what he's proposing. I've heard that. I, I haven't even read a story on it, so I, I get a little hesitant to comment on it one way too strongly. This is what I would say, though. What I do know, they're having a problem, particularly on the subway, with crime and you know people being assaulted and attacked. There has something has to be done, and if it's you know I think it's true. Many of these people have mental illnesses. Just leaving them back out on the street isn't always the best, certainly not best for uh, the community, but it's not best for the individual. And to get them some help is the right thing to do, I think. Other than there has to be, obviously, some balance in that and some due process. So I'd, I'd be curious what, I guess I'm just not educated enough to know exactly what he's proposing, but in my instinct says he's on the right track on that. I think it would be better for everybody in the end, uh, provided we, you know, we don't want to you know, run over civil liberties so we can lock anyone up or, you know, institutionalize anybody. That's New York State Assembly Republican Minority Leader Will Barkley speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The New York State Office of Cannabis Management's Control Board has officially approved the first 37 retail marijuana licenses. The Legislative Gazette's Ashley Hupfel has more. Meeting Monday, the board approved 29 business applicants and eight nonprofit applications from a pool of more than 900. The first licenses are going to applicants who were convicted of a marijuana-related offense before the law went into effect and also showed they had run a successful business. OCM Executive Director Chris Alexander says more licenses will be approved soon. The applications for the conditional adult use retail dispensary licenses are the final step in the supply chain we've been building since March when we first announced the seeding opportunity initiative. 
Already family farmers across New York have grown and harvested the first adult use cannabis in New York. And our processes are already hard at work transforming that harvest into a wide variety of products. New York will issue a total of 150 retail licenses. OCM has repeatedly said its goal is to have stores up and running by the end of the year. The agency was facing mounting pressure to issue the licenses after farmers harvested their cannabis plants before the winter season, but had nowhere to sell it. Speaking to WAMC in September during a tour of cannabis farm Mystic Meadows in Hopewell Junction, co-founder Ryan McGrath said if stored properly using cultivator storage bags, their crop can be kept fresh until February at the latest. When we go into what we what we call smokable flour, we'll actually we'll take it a step further than this. Like Alex mentioned, we'll bucket, but we'll actually then take the bud or the flour itself and trim that. And then we put it in basically the black and yellow totes that you would get at Home Depot or any other store. And those are airtight. We line those with, uh, with a plastic liner. And they're held airtight there until they're ready to go. So, you know, and there's... From there, you can you can even expand where they have like nitrogen sealers and, and different different models and methods to store. Monday's meeting follows a lawsuit filed earlier this month that argues the state's law violates constitutional commerce protections because it favors New York residents over out-of-state residents. Similar lawsuits filed in other states like Maine were ultimately successful. The lawsuit is holding up 63 of the eventual 150 licenses. Because of the lawsuit, the board is not yet approving retail licenses in the Finger Lakes, Central New York, Western New York, the Mid-Hudson Valley, and Brooklyn. Democratic State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes of Buffalo said she is confident the state will win the case. While equity is being tried in court, it's kind of sad that we're in 2022 and equity has to be on trial when everybody should be pushing towards equity. But I know that we'll win this case, and when we do, I look forward to those lists that include some other people, particularly those from those regions, including my beloved Buffalo, that have been left out. The board also approved a warning label that will appear on the packaging of cannabis products. Some revisions to the original proposal, such as easing rules to allow for the label to appear on the back of the product, were okayed. After approving the retail licenses, the board said it is considering licenses to allow for the delivery and on-site consumption of cannabis. During the September tour, co-founder Alex Keenan said they would be interested in creating something similar to wine tastings at vineyards. Kind of like a farm brewery type situation where you grow it on the farm, you consume it on the farm, you can sell it on the farm. It's kind of becomes like a tourist destination. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something that could be on the horizon for us, too. I'm Ashley Helpful. A coalition of over 300 organizations and businesses is calling for an updated bottle bill in New York. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. New York's bottle bill turns 40 next year. Bottle Bill 40 Coalition Campaign Coordinator Ryan Thorson Carson joined advocates at the Capitol for the release of a letter to Governor Kathy Hochul urging the Democrat to include a proposal in the upcoming state budget to double bottle deposits from 5 to 10 cents. Carson says with increasing amounts of plastic and container waste, the redemption program 
should be updated. That's going to incentivize recycling and make sure that people bring their bottles and their cans back to be recycled as opposed to putting them in curbside. It's absolutely essential that we divert as much waste from curbside recycling as possible. New York State is in a major, major waste issue. We are in an absolute crisis right now. And we need to be diverting as much waste as possible from our curbside recycling. And this will incentivize people to do so. So by, doing, by passing the New York State bottle bill, we're not just addressing that deposit issue, we're also looking at the types of bottles and cans that are actually in that um, system. So one thing that we'd be expanding to is wine and liquor bottles. These are a major, major issue for um, our recycling systems here across the state. When glass breaks, it makes all the things around it in that bale very, very hard to recycle. That depresses our entire state's recycling rate, which is already pretty abysmal, if we're being honest here. Um, so we're going to be adding wine, liquor, and hard cider into the system, as well as those very small pesky containers like nips, those very small plastic alcohol containers that are the most littered thing that you see in New York. The law was last updated in 2009 to include water bottles. Proponents of modernizing the measure contend a 10-cent return will create new jobs and benefit redemption centers. Carson tells WAMC a fresh update will also be a boon to people who pick up empty containers off the streets, too. Right now what we do in New York is define um, what is recyclable by the beverage inside of it as opposed to um, you know, the container itself. So we want to modernize and adjust that. And so this letter today was really calling on the governor to put this in their executive budget uh, to get this done next year. Ryan Castalia, executive director of the nonprofit Sure We Can Redemption Center, says the update provides an opportunity for New York to further combat the waste crisis, the climate crisis, and make strides forward in the name of environmental justice. He hails the existing bottle bill as the most effective recycling system we have in the state. A huge part of that is spending decades of arduous, laborious, inadequately remunerated work on the behalf of canners, the thousands of informal recyclers whose collecting allows the bottle bill to function as effectively as it does. That translates into right now a 64% return rate for the materials the bottle bill covers, hundreds of thousands of tons of plastic, metal, and glass diverted from our waste stream annually, as well as hundreds of thousands of dollars distributed into economically marginalized and environmentally overburdened communities, environmental justice communities. So the bottle bill is this incredibly efficient way to address all these problems. And by expanding it, by raising the deposits from five cents to 10 cents, by including more categories of containers within it, we're gonna see that effectiveness increase dramatically. A spokesperson for the governor says Hochul is committed to protecting our environment and fighting climate change and will review all budget requests. Syracuse area Democratic State Senator Rachel May responded to a request for comment by email saying she's hopeful that Governor Hochul will include the bigger, better bottle bill in the budget. But if not, I think we will have a lot of support for it in the legislature to pass it. There's more at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Many colleges across New York and around the nation are struggling financially with low enrollment. In the Adirondacks, Paul Smith's college is hoping a merger with a large nonprofit will help stabilize the school's future. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, we get more now from North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell. Paul Smith's College sits on the edge of Lower St. Regis Lake. It's in the middle of miles of Adirondack wilderness. There are tall pine trees that tower over campus walkways. And today, it's snowing. Inside the school's library, senior Anna Thrasher is sipping a warm cup of coffee and is wearing a gray Paul Smith's beanie. I love Paul Smith's. I love the campus. A lot of the faculty are awesome, even though some have like come and gone in my time here. Thrasher has seen the school cycle through four presidents. She says that's been tough. It's a lot to take in. Like half the time, we don't even know who's running the school. That turmoil began when the school's president of more than six years retired in 2020. Then the college hired a man from central New York. He lasted less than a year, said he wanted to spend more time with family. After that, the school's provost was appointed to president. He also lasted less than a year. Today, Paul Smith is being led by this guy. My name is Dan Kelting, and I am the interim president of Paul Smith College. Kelting has taught at the college for nearly 20 years. He's also led the school's Adirondack Watershed Institute. Paul Smith is one of the leading research institutions in the Adirondacks. But right now, Kelting says the school is facing some real uncertainty. Paul Smith College, just like many other colleges in the country, is in a challenging position. Colleges have struggled in recent years, especially during the pandemic. Around the U.S., about 60 schools have either closed or merged in the last five years. That's according to the education journalism outlet, The Heshinger Report. Kelting couldn't provide specific financial details on the state of Paul Smith's, but the Adirondack Explorer recently reported that the school had about a $600,000 deficit in 2020. The school is also at about half capacity, struggling to keep the dorms and classrooms full. So a couple of years ago, Kelting says the college went looking for help. We reached out to the, to the greater world, and FedCap answered and, and agreed to be our partners. The FedCap Group is a nonprofit based in New York City. It started out as a job training program after the Great Depression. Today, it's essentially a parent company of smaller nonprofits, serving a quarter of a million people. Its financial reports show that FedCap averages about $300 million in annual revenue. It's never partnered with a college before, but Kelting says he's excited about the potential. Their mission is to eliminate poverty, and that's a pretty awesome mission. And the way they do that is through workforce development, uh, through health care initiatives, through economic development and education. You know, the FedCap partnership, I was excited about because, hey, maybe then we would actually make a living wage. That's Bethany Gerritsen. She's a Paul Smith grad and was hired in 2014 to teach environmental studies. Gerritsen says during her eight years on staff at the college, she never got a raise. She says $40,000 a year just wasn't cutting it. I had to ask my parents to help me pay a heat bill this past winter, because it's like I wasn't making enough. I had no savings. Gerritsen ultimately left the college this fall. So have about a dozen other faculty and staff in recent months, including folks from human resources, campus safety, student wellness, and admissions. 
Interim President Dan Kelting says there's always going to be turnover at a place as big as Paul Smith's. Kelting says it's not easy to offer competitive pay. Wages are certainly a challenge. I think they're a challenge not only for faculty or employees of Paul Smith's. I think wages are a challenge for all employers in the Adirondacks. So that's not a, uh, a surprise that someone would have that, have that as an issue. Kelting says the goal after merging with FedCap is to raise wages for everybody. He hopes that could happen in the next few years. And the way to make that happen, Kelting says, is by expanding programs and upping enrollment. FedCap has a technical school in New York City. Kelting says they want to offer college credit to students there. That would then serve as a pathway to Paul Smith's. Kelting lays out a kind of best-case scenario for the college's future. This campus will be thriving. All the dorms will be full. The classes will be full. We'll have the thriving branch campus functioning in New York City. We may have programs in Boston, who knows, and maybe even in Europe. I'm very optimistic about the future of this institution. In a statement to NCPR, FedCap mirrored that enthusiasm, describing the partnership as a win-win. State and federal accreditors are reviewing the merger. It's unclear when a decision on that will come. For now, students at Paul Smith's say they're focused on their classes, their friends, their lives here on campus. Jamie Hintz is a second year here. He's wearing a green Paul Smith's hoodie and is hanging out at the student center. I'm here to learn, have fun, and have a meaningful experience. Um, And it's up to other people to make sure that the college is viable and working long term. Hence, like the other students I talked to, really like Paul Smith. They want to see it thrive. While it's not his problem to solve, Hintz says he sees merging with FedCap as a good way forward. With every change at Paul Smith College, I hope for a better, more educational and diverse place. And I think that what is being planned with the merger is, is part of that. Part of a solution that many hope will put Paul Smith back on a more sustainable track for students, faculty and staff here. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2248. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.